Hello, everyone, from beautiful Merced, located in the Central Valley of California. Thanks so much for being with me on this journey. I love preaching and teaching and communicating God's Word to people, and I know you do too. That's why you're listening. That's why you're with me on this journey of how to not be a boring preacher. Welcome to part five. We have been working our way through this subject for a while, and here we are now at part five. The end is inside. It's not with part five, it's with part six, but today we're getting into probably what many of you were hoping we'd get into from the beginning, okay? But as has been my custom, we've got we've to jettison some weird ideas before we get into this, okay? I, I've heard this from, from preacher and teacher folks a lot, actually, and, and I don't distinctly remember getting told this in seminary, but it's modeled enough to where we think we have to do this kind of stuff. But perhaps you've heard of these hyper-spiritualizations of the mystery of preaching. You've heard someone say, hey, don't, don't hear me, but hear Jesus. Or maybe someone prays, you know, Lord, hide me behind the cross that they would only see you and not the messenger. Or maybe you might be the real pragmatic type, and you might actually say, just remove me from the equation. And you actually say this, you know, on, on your Saturday and Sunday or whatever your services are, and you actually say this. And there, there are, I guess, endless variations on how we might do this. But the problem Okay, the problem is that it dehumanizes the whole event. Now, I can hear you now. You're probably thinking, Joel, it should dehumanize it. You know, humans are the problem. Uh, well, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. The Lord communicates most often through people, like the vast majority of the time in Scripture, and certainly nowadays on this side of the Holy Spirit— indwelling the church, he communicates through willing vessels yielded to his molding and shaping. People who will stand up and be like Peter and speak the truth of God. That That's people. People are doing that. So why in the world would we openly defy his plan for communicating his truth? James chapter 3, verse 1 cautions, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So, hey, I understand these statements. I really do. And I certainly am very aware of the gravity of what we do when we stand up to teach God's people. Look, I, I've, I've preached a lot of messages. I've taught a lot of times. And I still get nervous every single time. And the day I don't get nervous is the day I want to quit because that's when I realize, no, it's about me at that point. I, I need to get nervous. I need to remember what I'm doing because I do understand James chapter 3, verse 1, just as I know you do. But again, when we make those statements, we're removing too much of us out of the equation, and we're now replacing it with something else that kind of implies that we're some kind of possessed puppet because they are hearing our voice. They are hearing our illustrations. They are, in fact, hearing us. And now we're telling them, oh, by the way, you're, you're hearing me, but you're really not hearing me. Don't hear me. Hear Jesus. And that's resting on two dangerous assumptions. Number one, the first assumption that it's resting on is that we know the difference between us and the Lord's voice with 100% accuracy. Y'all, I'm going to be really honest. I'm not sure that I know the difference with 100% accuracy. Think of it this way. 
As the Lord reveals something to me as I'm studying Scripture, I now possess that, that knowledge, that something. So does that mean that the fact that I now possess it means that it's not God's anymore? Does he cease to possess it because I do? Well, no, of course not. So why would I get caught up in questioning, well, what part of this voice is mine? What part of this is the Lord's? If the Lord has sifted this through me first, what does it matter to them? It's going to be the same voice, right? Isn't that the point? The second assumption that it's resting on is that they will know the difference between us and the Lord's voice with 100% accuracy. I think that's the more dangerous one. I might be able to distinguish it in my own life. I might be able to say, you know what? I don't really have a scripture to back this up. This is just my opinion. I could say that. I can draw that distinction in my head and my heart, and I'd probably say it if that were the case. But how would they know the difference? What prevents them, for example, from simply taking what is the truth of God and what is the truth of Scripture and simply saying, well, you already told me I didn't have to listen to all of it, and so that's just your opinion, and they blow it off. Listen, we're in a postmodern culture. It happens. It happens in your congregation. It happens in mine. It happens in your small group. It happens in mine. It happens because they'll blow it off if they can. So let's not give them reasons to ignore what God is saying. And then there's that pesky problem of Scripture. It actually stands directly against this thought. Spiritual, though it may sound, it stands against it. I bet your Bible has 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. You can look it up if you want, but... Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, You should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Yeah, oops. He's saying the exact opposite. He's not saying, by the way, don't follow my example, you follow Jesus. He says, no, you should imitate me. You should walk as I am walking. Because that's what a leader does. That's what a spiritual leader does. We don't give our people reasons to doubt God's working in our hearts. We say, no, God is working. You should imitate me. This is why the standard is higher, because guys and gals, under the sound of my voice, they're going to do it anyway. They're going to follow our example anyway. They're going to pick up on our bad habits. They're going to imitate our sins. They are anyway. So let us strive to be more like Jesus so they have something to imitate like what the Apostle Paul is telling them to do. As I am imitating Christ, you can imitate me. Use me as your model. I'm going to start preaching. i got to stop. <laughs> you see what I mean? This just burns in me, you know? But let's take Paul's counsel to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, second part of verse 12 and into verse 13. I bet your Bible has this too, where Timothy is told, be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encourage the believers and teaching them. So folks, we got to stop saying these weird things. We got to stop perpetuating these Oh, I'll just say it, dumb ideas that people can somehow do this. It's a cop-out. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's just, I'm saying this as gently as I can, but I also want to make the point, it's a cop-out to say those lines, okay? Basically, like my dad said, if you can't take the heat, you get out of the kitchen, okay? 
We're, we're dealing with life and death here. Let's not mess around. Now, that said, let's talk about presentation. Over the next two parts of how to not be a boring preacher or teacher, use whatever term you want, I'm not stuck on the word, I'm going to give you two basic um, outlines, if you will, for presentation. Take them or leave them. If they help, awesome. If they don't, please find what does. I'm not huge on outlines because that word outlines, um, that word immediately conveys the idea of that old-fashioned seminary conditioned idea of I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, and now I'm going to give you three points about what I'm going to say, then I'm going to read a poem, and I'm going to dismiss, and it's boring, and it's dry, and it doesn't change people's lives. So when I say outline, don't think of it that way. Think of it as a structure, a skeleton that you're hanging the content on, okay? I'm trying to give you a skeleton because this is what was given to me that seems to have helped, okay? Now, I champion an approach to teaching the scriptures known as narrative exposition. Okay, I've not heard that in like major preaching books, but I've heard it uh, through various classes working on my doctorate of ministry. I've heard it from a few um, guys who I think really should write some books about preaching and communicating. And I've certainly heard the ideas conveyed in a lot of the big preaching textbooks that make a difference. Um, This is the approach that basically frames the message as a story, but it inserts information about setting and backstory, plot and historical context, how it fits and all that stuff. It puts that in there. So it's got the exposition in there. Okay, You're not just going to read the text and go on. You are going to break it down, but you're doing it in a narrative way. Which means, yes, I believe the best teaching form is a story-driven art form. Some of you are going to struggle with that. You're going to send me emails. You're going to see me in person, maybe, if you're in my area. And you're going to ask me about this. Yes, I believe the best teaching art form is a story. Why? Well, frankly, we talked about that already. But God gave us stories. Most of the Bible is presented in a narrative format. There's a story. This is how Jesus taught. This is how God conveyed his message to us. Most of it is story. And all good stories, oh, okay, okay, not all, but but let's not deal with the exceptions at this point. All good stories have three movements. They have three sections. Disequilibrium, reversal, and resolution. Disequilibrium is where the status quo is upset. In a movie, for example, it's like the first 15 minutes or so. It creates the tension, a problem, an upset to the balance of life. In a movie, you know, it's when it's when the person is kidnapped. It's when something explodes. It's when something surprises you. It creates tension. It grabs you. Now, in preaching, it's basically the same thing. It presents the problem which Scripture is going to be answering later in the message. Now, let me say that again. The disequilibrium presents the problem which Scripture is going to answer later in the message. Bear in mind, if you're just now joining us on this this session, you've already done this work in your preparation. You've already figured this out. This is driven by the text. Okay, you're not flying by the seat of your pants, walking up on Sunday morning and coming up with something to say that's just kind of a funny story. It's not a joke for a joke's sake. It's not a story for a story's sake. It's not being a shock jock for shock's sake. It is a problem that is driven by the text. 
Can you feel my energy here? Okay, this is a big one. This is the part that's missing from a lot of messages. It's the part that makes people set up and take notice and go, yeah, yeah, I've got that problem too. Yeah, that's my life. You're grabbing them by the throat in the first five minutes of the message. That's what the disequilibrium is. It upsets the status quo. The reversal then happens way towards the end of the message. Or if you're watching a movie, it happens towards the end of a movie. This is the release of all that tension. This is when the good guy wins and the bad guy loses. And at this point in a message, you're basically almost done. There's no tension left. There's a clock that's ticking because they're checking out. Why are they checking out? Because there's no more tension. There's nothing left to prove. You've proven the point. They've, you've released the tension. The reversal has happened. The good guy wins. And in preaching and teaching, this is like your big idea or the, the sticky statement if you want to put your big idea in a, a memorable way. This is the point that you really go, boom, and you hit them and they go, aha, yes. Yes, that's the answer. Okay? But the clock's ticking, so you have to move on to resolution, the final movement. This is the tying up of the loose ends. Okay, in a movie, this is the last few minutes before the credits roll. This is just kind of what happens now after the reversal has happened in the story. Okay, there's just not there's nothing new that's going to be presented at this point, unless you're watching a movie that's designed to tie into the next one. Then that's where they present the a teaser on their disequilibrium for the next movie. It's not new, it's wrapping up. Now, in preaching, this is our application. It is important. It is very important because most of us are, are not taught this section. We're not taught to really apply it this way. And because of how most of us are taught, I'm going to stress the resolution, this application section, as the most important. And again, you may label me a, a level two heretic for saying that, because, you know, the answer is supposed to be Jesus. The answer is supposed to be, you know, the Bible is the most important. Okay, we can argue that. But I'm just saying, if we don't give this emphasis, it's not going to happen. We must, 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 must teach for life change. And here's where we're going to tell them how to walk this out. Now do you see more of the problem when we begin saying, hey, don't listen to my words. You see, because of the way God has made human beings with our personality types, 60% of your congregation, give or take 2 or 3%, they're going to have to have something to benchmark their lives off of. They need what the Apostle Paul said when he told the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 60% of your congregation, maybe even uppers to 65%, are going to need you to benchmark what this looks like. They're going to need your help. This is our job as Bible teachers. This is our job as people teachers of the Bible, all right? Let's be consistent with terms. This is our job. This is our job. Okay, so we have disequilibrium, reversal, resolution. In a sense, that's its own outline. In a sense, that's its own skeleton. Just doing that will help us connect the truth of God's Word to the frailty of human existence in a way that will absolutely, radically change their lives. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> I want to go more into kind of how this can look, because even on a big three division message skeleton, it's still kind of almost too big when you got to sit down and actually make this work in real life. So I want to give you two approaches that I personally use, depending on the setting, 
that really takes these three movements into the real world. The first is uh, one made popular by Andy Stanley, um, and his approach is really fantastic, and there is a lot to like about it. You can read all about it in his book, Communicating for a Change. I do not receive any commission off the sale of that book, so I'm not pushing something that I'm getting paid for, uh, but it is, it is a stellar book that even if you don't like his approach that I'm about to give you, even if you don't like it, you're going to benefit from the philosophy of this book. You're going to benefit from the heart of really helping us to embrace this calling that God has given us and this Herculean task of trying to communicate the timeless truth of God to very time-constrained human beings. It's just stellar. Okay, enough of the commercial. But uh, Andy's approach is not driven by the content of the message so much as the communicator's relationship with the listeners. I know, I know that that's contrary to how we're taught. I know, I've been there. Um, but we've been really honest in this podcast, and I've been honest, and many of you have resonated with that honesty. How we're taught is to be so dry and so uninteresting with just cerebral information that we would not want to listen to ourselves. So why in the world are we going to subject other Christians to what we ourselves don't want to listen to? All right, so his approach is me, we, God, you, we. Let's break that down. Me. The me section is a personal story driven by the problem you've discovered in the text. It's personal. It's a story that says, I was walking along one day, Okay, or, or I was talking to my wife, or I was, you know, talking to my kid, whatever that is. It's a personal story driven by the problem that you've already discovered in the text. Remember, we are talking about presentation. You've already done the preparation, you've done the homework. We're talking about how do you take pages of notes and now present this in a very finite amount of time. That's the meat. We is taking your story and connecting it to everyone else. It draws them into the problem Scripture is about to solve. But you've done it by first showing the problem in your life, first showing how this tension exists, and it does it in a way that they can identify with. Now, the third one is the God section. This is Scripture. This is the teaching component. This is the part we know how to do already, but it truncates it because these connecting parts are also there. They also have to fit into all this, okay? Then there's the, the you section. That's the beginning of the application. That's the application point to the individual. Again, you've already done this work in your preparation. You're just telling them now. You're just telling them how to apply this. The final we section, which sometimes I tend to think of it as us, just so I can remember this is the last one, because you already have a we at the beginning. But this is the application point to the community of faith. You've probably already done this too. This is the vision. This is showing the congregation what could be if we did this as a congregation. Now, in the sense of full disclosure, this is just glossing the surface of this great approach. It's why I recommend his book, Communicating for a Change. But uh, this approach especially works uh, well when you are a guest speaker. Because you need to build rapport very quickly with the people who are listening to you because they're sitting out there and asking, why should I listen to this guy or girl? And opening with a story about yourself disarms your listeners and also brings them into the problem the text is going to talk about. Okay, Again, 
far from dehumanizing, we're trying to engage ourselves in the process to show that this stuff actually works. I'm sure you agree with me that the Bible will change your life. So we got to show that it changes ours too. Now, before you simply take uh, your 45-minute message and add on me, we, and you in the last we sections, please know your entire structure needs to fit into your allotted time. For me, that's 32 minutes. So in 32 minutes, I've got to fit every single component in there. So I'd have to present the disequilibrium of the me and we as part of the message because it's just as important. This is what Jesus did when he told the stories. This is how the parables worked. We're just imitating the master teacher. Fundamentally, folks, it's teaching more using less. And it is effective. No, you won't get as much of your research in there. No, you won't get as much content in there. No, you won't have time to run six different fill-in-the-blank points that are completely unrelated. But is the point of what you're trying to say to tell them the similarities between the flood story of Genesis and the flood epics of secular culture in painstaking comparison and contrasting detail? Or is your point to teach him to trust the Lord even when he doesn't make sense? Are we trying to make people smart or are we trying to make them holy? Now, before you start going off on me and writing me emails saying, well, you're setting up that if we're holy, we're not smart. No, that's not my point. My point is, I don't fundamentally believe that more content makes for a better Christian. We have all the content we need. But by and large, we preacher-teacher types have not told our people what to do with it. Remember, knowledge makes us haughty. Application makes us holy. Next time, I'm going to talk about a recent form of narrative exposition that I have come to really, really find effective uh, here in my own house as I am teaching on a regular basis like many of you do. And I cannot wait to share it with you. Until then, keep preaching and teaching as a beggar, telling others where to find the bread because that bread is the bread of life.